What a blessing it is to be able to sing to the Lord and be just ushered into a spirit of worship. Now we'll get our Bibles out, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, page 1313 in the pew Bible in front of you. So if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you can just reach there, grab that hardback Bible, open to page 1313, you'll find 1 Corinthians 4, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth that's been instructing us over the last several weeks as we have been thinking about uh, this greater than life that God is calling us to. If you understand sort of the, the context of what's going on in Corinth, uh, these this church is really in a troubled state. Paul has planted this church. He loves this church very much. He's writing this letter to them because they are not where they need to be. Uh, they're, they're a church much like uh, the church of today. That's why it's such a, a very um, just relevant letter to study because so much of what is going on in Corinth would relate so directly to the culture we find ourselves in today. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So we're going to look at those five verses this morning. And we're going to think about and just build upon what God has been telling us in the last two weeks as we finish chapter 3 and then move into chapter 4. All of this connects together. Paul uh, is troubled in his spirit as he sees a church that is um, growing, but, but not growing spiritually. That we will find out in chapter 5 that there are unbelievers among them, but still, there are lots of people who are Christians in Corinth, and yet things are not going as they should because they have sort of gotten off track. They are stuck in a, uh, a place where they're not growing spiritually because their focus has moved from God onto man. And so they're focused on one another. They're focused on carnal human things, and it has left them in a less-than position. And Paul is urging them forward to become greater than, to experience all that God has for them. That's why he said back in chapter 3, he said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal as to babes in Christ. And just telling us what his great concern is for them. And there was all sorts of immaturity going on in this church and strife and envy and focus on things that ought not be focused on. And the more I study through First and Second Corinthians, uh, the, the more relevant it becomes in my heart and the, more, uh, the greater desire I have uh, to just continue to study through it and to bring forward all the ways in which uh, I think God could speak directly into our lives. When I, 
when a group of people focuses on man and not on God, it will wreak havoc in their lives. It is going to create all sorts of problems within that culture, within that group of people. And one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to be, become biblically illiterate. They're not going to grow in wisdom as we saw last week. And the reason they're not going to grow in wisdom is because the Bible teaches that the only way to gain wisdom is through God. And the only way to gain wisdom through God is through His Word. And so when a people that profess to be Christians don't devote themselves to the Word, something goes haywire. And they become babies. They become illiterate. They don't have understanding. They don't know how to rightly respond to situations and circumstances that they're facing. And what happens is, is that they begin to act in ways that are completely counter to what the Bible says. That a, that a group of people who call themselves Christians, who meet in a building that says on the sign outside that it's a church, would actually behave in, a, in such a way, have priorities in their life such that, that are actually counter to what God says in the Bible. Now, I mean... I run into this kind of thing all the time, uh, reading about various things that go on today in so-called Christianity and, you know, uh, and, and, and just situations that I have an opportunity to get involved and try to help with, with other churches and pastors and circumstances. And, you know, sometimes I'm just scratching my head thinking, you do realize that the Bible speaks directly to this and says the exact opposite of what you're doing. And so there's even a, a term now that's been coined called Christian atheist. And people use this term, and I think rightly so. The definition of a Christian atheist is uh, when you believe in God but live as if he doesn't exist. And so as crazy as it may seem, uh, the Bible is quite aware of Christian atheism not only in the church in Corinth, but in many other places in Scripture. The Scripture says in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That's Christian atheism according to God. Dealing with it in the book of Titus, and nothing's changed, it's still here today. And believe it or not, you'd be surprised at how many ways it shows its itself in our lives, in this room even. Ways that we sort of impress things upon God that don't belong there. Ways that we conform our thinking into the ways of man, not the ways of God, and then just sort of run with it. Let me give you an example. If we start a business, we equate the blessing of God with how much money the business makes. If we 
go to school. We equate our success in school with how good our grades are. We equate that to the blessing of God, that, oh, God's blessing me, I'm doing so well. God's blessing me, I'm making money. If we play sports, we even equate the blessing of God on winning. Yet, has anyone stopped to consider that the wealthiest people in the world are not Christians? The people that the world hails as the smartest, most intelligent people are not Christians. Neither are the greatest athletes or those who own the winningest teams Christians. In other words, what I'm saying is if the blessing of God upon your business was found in your bottom line, then if you extrapolate that thinking out, the wealthiest people on the planet would be believers. The winningest athletes in the world would be Christians, that all the smartest, most uh, uh, acclaimed acad acad academic people would be Christians, if that were the blessing of God. But that's not the case. But somehow, we bring it down into our own life. When it has to do with us and the people around us, we speak of God in those terms. Why do we do that? Because that's the way we think. And we think if it makes sense to us, then that's the way God is. Is that the way God is? Think of all of the things that happen today in churches that the people just take for granted that are not in the Bible. I'm waiting for someone to come and... And, you know, we're grateful to God for all that God brings to us. But I'm waiting for, for someone to come and, and join Michael Memorial and say, Pastor, uh, I'm here to join the church, and I just want you to know I'm, 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 not, I'm not bitter and frustrated with, with my old church or anything there. I just had to leave because my pastor preaches too short. And I would say, you are in the right place. I mean, God has sent you to heaven on earth. You don't need to clap for that, really. See, now you're being a smart aleck. In other words, think of all the reasons that people get disheveled and, and, and bent out of shape about various things that go on in various churches that aren't even in the Bible. But because it makes sense to us that we ought to act a certain way or treat each other a certain way or do certain things, but they're not the priority of Scripture. That, that basically a church could, could pour the Word of God into somebody, but if, if their felt needs weren't met, then they're, you know, disgruntled and upset. Because... Our priorities are just simply most of the time not what God's priorities are. Don't you see? And so we, we, we turn all of these things into success in Christianity. Into, we call so many things the blessing of God. And quite frankly, I have read this entire book over and over and over and over and over. And it's not in there. 
And so with regards to being uh, in a less than situation and not experiencing the greater than that God has called us to, not growing as we should in Christ, one of the greatest roadblocks to growth spiritually is to wrongly measure success, to use what seems right and logical to you and to me in a human sense as success to God. You know, uh, maybe it's a marriage that is in a perpetual struggle. Maybe it's a family that is, has got some, all this relational tension, problems with uh, children, whatever the case may be. And so uh, somebody who is a Christian, maybe they're in Corinth, maybe they're in this church today, and so they're, they're, they're upset about about the situation in their marriage. They're upset about the relationship going on in their family. They're upset about their work environment. They're whatever it is that you're upset about and you're struggling about. And so what happens is you identify with the fact that uh, it's, it's probably not God's will. In other words, it's not God's will for your marriage to be filled with strife. It's not God's will for your family to be filled with strife. And so we agree with God on the problem and that God doesn't want things to be the way they are. We agree with Him there. But we go from that point to coming up with our own solution to the problem. We find a place in Scripture that agrees with the problem that we have and we know that God's not happy with what we're not happy with. But then we don't go to God with the solution to the problem. And what happens is you will stop growing. And you're thinking, well, what do you mean? Why am I going to stop growing? Here's why you're going to stop growing. Because some of you will relate to this instantly. You obsess over whatever it is you're discontent about. You obsess over the fact that your marriage isn't the way it ought to be. You obsess over the fact that your family's not the way it ought to be or your job's not the way it ought to be or whatever it is. And so you stay so consumed with that and you pray every day, God, will you change my marriage? God, will you change my children? God, will you change my family? Change my job? Change my finances? Change my health? Change this? Change, God, change. And you just keep going around and you're like a rat in a wheel just going around in circles. And it goes and goes and goes and nothing ever changes. You just keep going around in circles, circles. And then you just... You you tell everyone you talk to, I don't know, I've been praying about it, and I've been thinking about it, and I've been waiting, and, and God just won't fix it. God just won't fix it. And you never grow. You just stay right there, stuck in that position, in that spot. Now, is that what God would have you to do in that situation? See, the fact that so many of you are looking at me right now like, I don't know, I think so. I think that's what God would have me to do. That's not what God would have you to do. God defines success in a very different way than we do. Which is why the greatest Christians alive today, most of them, nobody knows who they are. In the Bible especially in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, but especially in the New Testament. In the New Testament, all of the amazing God-gifted and ordained leaders that we read about, all the apostles that we read about, these great men of God, were 
They were relatively unknown. They were nobodies. They weren't, they weren't famous people that everybody knew of. They were just nobody people that God used to do great things. And so if God were, were still writing the Bible today, if God were, were using people right now in the United States of America to be in Scripture, they wouldn't be names of people that you know. They wouldn't be famous people that are out in front because that's not how God defines success. God defines success by faithfulness. It's just that simple. That's not what you want to hear. That's not what the church at Corinth wants to hear, but that's what Paul's going to say. Now look at verse 1, what Paul says. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now let's just focus on that sentence for a second. What Paul wants you to understand this morning is that God is not fixated on changing your circumstances. He's fixated on changing you. God could change your circumstances anytime he wants to in the blink of an eye. And the fact that they're not changing ought to tell you something. So like last week when we talked about the parts of God's will, that God desires to do things in us and through us, and we love the in us part, but we resist the through us part. And we always push the through us part away because we say, well, God hasn't done enough in me, and once he's done enough in me, then I'll, I'll let him do something through me. And you never go anywhere because you're never going to get to the point where you feel God's done enough in you to do something through you because at that point it wouldn't take any faith to let God do something through you. And so God says, well, you want to know what success is? Here it is right here. Consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So let's focus on these two words, servants and stewards. A servant, huperetes. It's a Greek word that is a very specific word for servant. This isn't the normal word that maybe would be translated slave or this servant is a is an under rower this servant is used to describe the one who's at the bottom of a boat on the third level of the galley all the way down in the belly of the boat just rowing to get the boat to where it needs to go so it's the lowest position on the ship it's the one who just rowing faithfully their only job is to row and Paul is saying what you need to understand is that we should be considered successful when we are servants of Christ, when we are under rowers. We just row the boat. We don't drive the boat. We don't steer the boat. Think about, think about what it would be like to be an under rower. Your job is to just sit on a bench in a little compartment filled with other men, people slammed together on these little benches, holding on to the ends of these oars, and just rowing these ships across the, the ocean. Now, they can't see anything except for out of a little bitty hole that the oar's going through. They can't see where they're going. They can't see anything. They're completely trusting that the one on top, the captain of the ship, is leading the ship in the right direction as they just row and row and row. And the key to rowing is, is that you row in accordance with the way that you've been trained to row. 
In other words, if, if one man who is an under rower decides he wants to start using some creative method of rowing, he's going to mess up the whole system. That the way to row is to be in perfect cadence with everyone else around you and to do it exactly according to the way the master wants you to row. While the master is up on the top of the ship, guiding the ship, steering the ship, can see where everything is and where they're going and what they're doing, but the under rower just rows. You don't want to be an under rower, do you? That doesn't sound very exciting. That doesn't sound like... Wow, I'm so glad I woke up and came to church this morning so that you could tell me that success in the Christian life would be to be an under-rower. But that's what Paul's saying. Then he jumps to this word, steward. Now, this word is used to describe one that the master would trust to handle his affairs in his absence. So a steward it would be someone who's faithful that the master would be able to leave like like Joseph was the head steward and, and, and left over Potiphar's house and all of Potiphar's affairs in the book of Genesis. So a steward would be one who is faithful to be trusted by the master. And so you've got this under rower picture where we're just rowing the boat along and we're, we're just following as the leader, as, the, as the, the captain steers the boat and handles all the affairs on the top where we're just in the bottom and then to be a faithful steward of that which the master has entrusted to us. And so again, the picture would be just like the master is in charge of the boat, the master is in charge of what the steward is entrusted with. Now think about this for a second. The steward doesn't have any say-so in what the master entrusts to them, right? The master decides The master decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you the steward in charge of all of my flocks. Or I'm going to make you the steward in charge of of my, my whole farming operation. Or I'm going to make you in charge of my whole operation. In my absence, you will be me. But whatever the realm of responsibility is, whatever the job description is, that is not up to the steward. It's up to the master. The master says, here's what I'm going to entrust to you. It's your job to only do one thing, to be faithful in watching over and caring for that which I've entrusted to you. So Paul is saying, if you want to be successful in the Christian life, then you need to have the mindset of an under rower who faithfully rows the boat, who doesn't need to know where the boat's going because they trust the master to take them in the right place, who doesn't need to get fancy and creative, but who will just faithfully row the boat and be a good steward of whatever God's entrusted to them. This is what Paul is saying to these immature Christians who are running around, you know, talk, 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 fussing with each other, having strife and envy and all kinds of childish behavior among them. He's saying what you need to do is you need to keep rowing and you need to be faithful over what God's entrusted you. Don't look at what other people are stewarding. Don't look at what the master's entrusted to other people. Just row the boat. And be faithful with what God's entrusted to you. Now that's a lot different than obsessing over my situation not being the way I want it to be. 
and just going around and around in circles. Around and around I go. Every single day, it's the same old thing. It's the same prayer request. It's the same struggle. It's the same, and we're just over and over, around, and nothing ever changes. Here we go, here we go, here we go. He says in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. He's just saying the same thing in a different way. So he's saying, don't get caught up in what we wish we had. Don't get caught up in what we wish we were. Don't, don't get yourself all tangled around in what you wish you would have accomplished or what, what, what you wish wouldn't have happened or all of those other things. But just today, where you are, be faithful at where God's put you. Row the boat that you're on that the Lord is the master of and steward the things that he has given to you. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow because some of you in this room are not happy with what you've been given to steward. You don't like it. In fact, and and you justify your discontentment with it because you know it's God doesn't like it either. So, for example, you're here this morning by yourself. And your, your spouse isn't here. Maybe you, you don't have a spouse anymore. And so you're, you're, you're upset with that. And you don't like the fact that that's what you've been given to Stuart. And you know that God doesn't like that, that God's, God's never for divorce. And so you think, well, because he's not, he doesn't like that and I don't like that, then that's just a bad situation. And, and what, what's happened is you started right, but then you jumped off the ship. You left the track. What God's saying here through Paul is, no, whatever your situation is right now, don't analyze the situation. Don't obsess over the situation. Just be faithful today in what you have today. Today. Just be faithful in it. Be faithful in your physical ailment. Be faithful in your troubled marriage. Be faithful in your family that's struggling. Be faithful in your financial woes. Be faithful in whatever it is you find yourself in. Just row the boat and manage what the master has given you to steward. Right? Yeah. And what does God say? He he has tons of promises about those who are faithful in the small things. Maybe it's not what you ultimately want. But let me tell you how to get there. I don't know if you're going to get there or not. That's up to God. That's God's will and purpose. That's not for me to say. But if you do get there, it's only going to come one way. It's going to come through faithfulness. So what's going to help us this morning sort of swallow this pill? Because it can be hard. It can be hard. I think there's three things that Paul tells us that are very helpful. The first one is this. Don't define success by what others think of you. See, remember, we started uncovering last week that one of, the, one of the, the, the underlying issues that comes up in 1 Corinthians is the insecurity of the people in Corinth. And I showed you how we're a very insecure people today, just like they were. So he says in verse 3, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying this, obviously, because to them it's not a small thing. And so he's instructing them. He's saying, you know, people-pleasing is living your life in such a way that you please people. See, that's very complicated. Living your life so that the people around you are pleased. 
Which again, humanly, you know what? That sounds really nice, doesn't it? Isn't that nice? Shouldn't we all live our lives in such a way that the people around us are pleased? Wouldn't the world be a better place? No, it wouldn't. Because what if all the people around you are stupid? Did you ever consider that? And here's what you already know to be true. That's an impossible endeavor to accomplish. Because every, all the people around you that you're endeavoring to please all want something different from you, don't they? Yes, they all see at work they want you to be one way. At home they want you to be another way. With your friends they want you to be another way. So every little group wants you to be a different way. So you'd have to replicate yourself over and over and over again in order to do that, which is impossible. You can't be that. And then on top of that, as if that's not enough of a problem, all the people around us that we're trying to please are constantly changing their mind about what will please us. Do not elbow your husband. Like what pleases him one week, the next week he's displeased with, or vice versa. And so around and around we go. And you're running around trying to please the people around you and try to live up to their expectations, and all it's going to do is lead you to bondage. What Paul is saying is what you need to do is you need to minimize, you need to reduce, you need to shrink down the importance of what other people think of you. Now, notice what he says. He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now, it's important to know what the Bible doesn't say. Paul doesn't say to eliminate what other people think of you. See, he says it's a small thing. He didn't say it's nothing. He said it's a small thing. It is a thing. It's just a small thing. So in other words, he's not suggesting that you close yourself off completely to all wisdom and advice around you or to what other people think. That would be a very dangerous and damaging position to take. But you don't need to have it elevated. You cannot live for the applause of the world around you. You will utterly fail and live in continual frustration because that is an impossible task that can never be accomplished. And what will it do? It will keep you spinning around in a circle so you never grow an inch. You never grow. You just go around and around and around. You see? And Paul's dealing with people who simply aren't growing. Now, what is a biblical principle that would help you understand just how damaging this is. Well, for example, look at what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible says, For do I now persuade men or God, Paul says, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see that? Paul is saying that if I seek to please men, it disqualifies me from being a servant to God. You cannot serve two masters. So either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve what other people think of you. So if you're here this morning and you know that you're wrapped up in this, this idolatrous swirl of what everyone else around you thinks, at least what you need to know for sure right now in this moment is that you are not a faithful servant of God because you simply cannot be. You cannot be. They're too, so you don't need to eliminate, but you need to minimize. You need to shrink down. You cannot define success by other people. It is a disaster. 
Number two, don't define success by what you think of yourself. You know, I, I started to say as I was thinking about this that this may be a greater disaster, but it's just an equal disaster. It may be, in some cases, it seems a little more shocking because it's less evident, I guess, then. There's a lot of people running around who are living for the applause of the people around them. I mean, let's face it. There's men in this room, and you, your whole life is built around your job and trying to succeed. And it's all, your family is suffering at the altar of your job. And you know that, and your wife knows that, and your kids know that, and everybody knows that. And you continue to do that. You can't seem to break the, the, the yoke, the bondage. There's some of you in this room that you are like puppets on a string to those around you. Maybe it's, it, maybe, you know, you're, you're a grown person with your own family and your, your mom still calls you on the phone and controls you like a puppet and you're so worried about what your parents think and so that you just run around trying to meet their applause or live up to their standard and it's just bondage and it's choking the life out of you. But it's, it's a little more secretive and seedy and hard to see when somebody is defining success by what they think of themselves. But when you see it, it's shocking. He says, in fact, in the second part of verse 3, I do not even judge myself. Now, it's interesting to know Paul is using this word judge, which usually gets our attention because we, we kind of tune up to that because we're all real sensitive about that. And that's one of the places where we have completely and utterly imposed things on God that aren't in the Bible. And so we say ridiculous things to each other like, well, judge not or else you'll be judged. And, you, you know, I'm like, does anybody read the Bible? Do you... Do you even know where that is? Do you know what the context of that is? Do you know what God's talking about when he says that? My goodness. Uh, if, if, if Christians didn't look at the fruit in each other's lives and judge each other to a certain degree to encourage and help each other, it would be catastrophic. You'd violate half the commands in the New Testament. I mean, obviously, of course. But you don't judge the unbelieving world because they're unbelieving. What are you judging them in a, against? And when we're judging each other, as we're going to find out in a minute, how do we do that? Well, before we get off task, let's make sure that we're clear on what Paul's saying. Paul, is, Paul already says in the same letter that we're to examine ourselves. That, that when he's starting out writing this letter in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, let each man examine himself. So we need to examine ourselves, but we don't need to judge ourselves. So what does he mean by that? What he means is you don't need to define success in your own mind. Like you are defining yourself. You are setting your identity by your own devices and understanding. That who you are is not defined by you any more than it's defined by the other people around you that people are trying to please. Your identity, who you really are, is defined only by one person, and that's the person who created you. He defines who you are. Because if you define who you are, that's not going to go well. That's not going to go well at all. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
What do you think happens when you, in, in the wisdom of your own heart, define success? Decide for yourself, here's what I think, here's my opinion, here's what I believe would be the thing that would, that would indicate success, that, that I think God's going to do, that I, whatever the case may be. Well, that's how you're going to come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about things like, well, it must be if God were blessing me, then, then in my business it would be financially. If God were blessing me in school, it would be my grade point average. If God were blessing me in sports, it would be my winning percentage. And you can just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So whenever something happens that we like that's good, we say, look at God blessing. And whenever something happens that's bad that we don't like, we, we just either don't say anything or we go, well, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, which is it? Because if, if, if I'm making money, it's the blessing of God, then if I'm not making money, it must be the curse of God. Which means Jesus is the most cursed person that ever lived. So that can't be true, right? I mean, or, or, or the success of anything else. I mean, when Jesus hung on the cross, he looked like the biggest failure that ever lived. Right? So, where do we get all these ideas? From our wicked heart. We make up stuff that doesn't have anything to do with God. And it makes sense to us. It's the way we think, so we think that must be how God is. This is why Paul says in verse 4, he goes, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. See, what he's saying is, right now... I'm Paul the Apostle. I'm the greatest Christian who ever lived besides Jesus Christ. I don't know of any sin in my life right now at all, but that doesn't justify me. That doesn't make me right in God's eyes. But it's He, capital H, He, He, Yahweh God, who judges me. He's the Lord. You see, who is the one who sets the standard for success in your life? What do you see this morning? As you came into this place, if you were just having an honest conversation with yourself in your head about success in your life, well, what is it? What arena is it? How are you successful? How are you, what are you, how are you growing in Christ? Because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. That we're to fear the Lord and depart from evil. Isn't it interesting that, that the book of wisdom says that wisdom is the Bible doesn't even question that a person who thinks they're wise is engaging in evil conduct. You see that? It just takes for granted. If you think you're wise, depart from evil. To which I say, well, wait a minute. How do you know I'm how do you know I'm doing evil? Because you think you're wise. You don't, wanna, you don't want to justify success by what you think. That is a catastrophic mistake. And you certainly don't want to justify, you don't want to come up with what success is by what other people think. So what do we want to do? Let's be helpful. Paul, help us this morning. What do we? I want to be successful. Most of the people in Corinth... Or thinking, I don't want to be a baby. I don't want to stay in all this strife. I don't want to keep going around in circles. I want to get out of this wheel. I want to change. I want to grow. I want something good to happen. What do I do? 
If you read 2 Corinthians, you find out that they made great strides. And there's help for you this morning right here in this text. Look at verse 5. He says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So the third thing, just skip back a couple slides, the third thing is define success according to God's definition of success. Not what people think, not what we think, not what you think, but what does God think? Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. That's what you want. You want your steps to be ordered by the Lord, not by you and not by other people. You want, you want to know what the Bible says. You want to be able to know, here's what the Bible says that, that I should be doing, and here's the solution to my problem. And so Paul says, well, don't judge things before it's time. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is people don't know squat. You got that? Everybody has an opinion about something, and they don't know anything. And so everybody has an opinion about why somebody's doing something or what the problem is in somebody's life or, and don't know anything. And so a lot of times, you know, people come up to me and start talking about a, a situation, and their intention is right, but they don't know the circumstances of the situation. And I do. And I'm listening to what they're saying, and they're coming to all kinds of conclusions that are so out of, they're just wrong. You don't know the facts. Why are you coming to a, a conclusion when you don't know what's going on? All you've done is heard of something or one side of it or whatever the case may be. And so if you're chasing around, I mean, listen, so Paul's saying he's, he's dealing with this issue of judging. And he's saying, judge nothing before it's time until the Lord comes. Okay, so he's going to explain what he means by, well, what is the Lord going to do when he comes? Well, he tells us he's going to bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. So Paul's talking about judging the hidden things of darkness and the counsels of the heart, right? So what the Bible's telling us in 1 Corinthians 4 is that we ought not judge the inside things. Do not be a judge of somebody's heart. Do not judge somebody's motivations. Do not think that you have the, you know why someone's doing something they're doing. You don't know. You're not God. You don't, that's not your realm. You judge what you can see. You judge action, not, not intention. You follow me? So if someone's doing something who's a believer that they ought not be doing, you should go to them and talk to them about that. Because they ought not be doing it and you can see them doing it. But you shouldn't go to someone and talk to them about why you think they're doing what they're doing or what their motivation or intention is or what's going on inside of them that's causing them to do this because you don't know that. You, you and me deal with what we, what we can know, what we can see. There's a difference between where God, see, we, we can see fruit. We can see externally change in people's lives. We can see the, their, their sanctification process coming forward. But you can't see what's going on inside. And so you have to be careful about that. And so Paul's saying, hey, 
You don't need to be judging things before it's time. God's going to show up, and He's going to bring it all to light, and it's all going to be evident, and He's going to handle it, and He's going to judge it. He says, and then each one's praise will come from God. You see, if if you're a child of God this morning, I, I I want you to really understand what I'm about to say. That when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, when you are face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, either he returns or it's the end of your earthly life, whichever comes first, there you are face to face with God. I want you to understand that he is going to be the most gracious and fair judge that you could ever imagine. That you're not going to be judged according to your sin because your sin has already been forgiven. You wouldn't be standing in front of the Lord if you weren't a Christian. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians only. So if you're there in front of Christ, he's going to judge you on what? Not your sin. We talked about building with wood, hay, and stubble or precious stones and gold and silver. But understand something, that he knows all the secret things, all the thoughts and intentions of your heart, all the things that no one else knew. You know that? And so you know what he knows? He knows the family of origin that you were born into. He knows the struggles that you faced when you were a child. He knows the things that have been done to you. He knows the physical limitations that you faced. He knows the, 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 the struggles that, that you have. See, he knows all. He knows all the things that we don't know, that none of us know. No one else knows that but you and him. And there's going to be great comfort in the fact that as he is judging how you have built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that all of the secret things are going to come to light, not in a terrifying way, but in, the, in, in a lot of ways a good way. Because he knows. He realizes that all of us are building on the same foundation, but all of us are not the same. See, he knows because he's the master that's entrusted something for you to steward. You understand? I don't know that. You don't, you, no one else around you knows that, but God does. And so he's not going to hold you to the same standard he holds other people to. He's going to hold you to you and me to me individually. And that ought to comfort your heart. But it also ought to motivate you to realize, wait a minute, I need to have a right definition of success. So he gets back to verse 1 and 2, which is really where he said what he wanted us to hear. 3, 4, and 5 are just explanations so that we can make sure that we understand 1 and 2. That success is to be a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God. You know, there's so many mysteries in this unsearchable God that we, we, you, you could never you can never plumb the depths of his word completely you can never fully know you just can't there's too much to God and so he's given us this little snippet in scripture that we ought to devote our lives to knowing and eating as much of it as we possibly can and just bearing it in our heart so that we know his nature and character and everything that we need to know about him, he's given it to us. But it's an inexhaustible resource. Do you understand that? And so he decides, notice that Paul says we're to be 
under rowers of Christ. So the way that we, the way that we approach our responsibility as a child of God is we're under rowers of Christ. We're simply rowing the boat. We're, we're not questioning where the boat's going. We're not stressing out. You see, think about being an under rower. You're going to have different days. Not every, not every day is the same for an under rower. See, some days you're rowing along and maybe out of that little peephole you see land. Or maybe word travels, you know, from the top deck down to the next galley to the next galley. And so you get word that, you know, today you're probably going to come into port. And so that's a different day because you're rowing with a little extra zeal that day because you know you're about to get into port and you're going to get a rest. Right? And so that's a good day as an under rower. But then there's some days you're just out in the middle of the ocean and it seems like you're never going to get to where you are. Or you wake up and the wind, you can hear the wind howling as the, and you, the, the team that's been rowing all night goes to bed and then the next team comes and takes their place and you can hear the, the wind just whistling as it's coming through the planks on the side of the ship. And so you know that you're fighting this headwind and you know it's going to be a rough day of rowing because, man, it's just the waves are beating the boat and you're just rowing and rowing and it seems like it's never going to end. And Paul says, whether you are encouraged or discouraged, whether it's a good day or a bad day, you are to row. You are to row. You are to live in the confidence that the master of the ship is a good and faithful God and that he's in control and that nothing is going to happen to that ship apart from his wisdom and knowledge and that he controls everything, including the weather and the storms and the seas and everything else. And you just row. And if that sounds to you like a, 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 just some menial, worthless, boring, useless life, then you don't know this master. Because what you need to understand is where this ship is going. You're rowing this ship, and some days it seems like it's not going anywhere. But Scripture's telling you, oh no. Even on your worst day, on your most defeated day, you're going somewhere all right. And as you're faithful, God is going to begin to bless you. And how is Paul telling you he's going to bless you? Is Paul saying, you just keep rowing and I'm going to fix your marriage. You just keep rowing and I'm going to bring your prodigal child home. You just keep rowing and I'm going to get you out of bankruptcy. You just keep rowing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you keep rowing and I will unravel the mysteries of God for you to steward. You be faithful, and I'll reveal myself to you more and more. And the more faithful you are in a circumstance you don't like, the greater the mystery of God is unraveled before you. And pretty soon what happens is you meet people in your Christian life, and it's, it's the craziest thing that... It doesn't seem to matter what is going on in their life or around them or whatever it is. They have this unexplainable joy in their relationship with God. They have this incredible peace about them where they just seem to have the strength of God that carries them through all of the storms of life. And it's not because they don't have any problems, but it's because they just keep rowing. 
And God just keeps stewarding his mysteries to them. And as they become more faithful, he expands their territory. And they become more faithful and he expands their territory. And he works in them and through them and in them and through them. And it's just a blessing of God. And sometimes he fixes their marriage and brings home their kids and moves in their job. But sometimes he doesn't. But either way, they keep growing. They keep winning. They keep, the success keeps pouring because that's how God works. It's not what the people around you think. It's not what you think. It's what God thinks. And what you're going to find out is that when you get to heaven, it's not the people that you thought. It's not the people that you thought that were doing so great. It's the people who just keep rowing. They're down in the galley. Hand on the oar. Rowing the ship, trusting the the master. Stewarding the mysteries of God as he's unleashing them upon them. Which would be why all of these great men in the New Testament None of them were rich. None of them were successful as we would call success. None of them. All of them in the world's eyes were a complete failure. And yet, 2,000 years later, we're still reading about them. And all the kings and dignitaries and great people and wealthy people and then undefeated teams and owners of the teams and everything else, where are they in history? They're gone. Because God defines success differently than you and I do. He says he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. You know, in Numbers chapter 20, there's a narrative there about Moses leading the children of Israel through the wilderness of Zin. And they're walking through the wilderness and, I mean, it's a whole nation of people. All their animals, all their possessions, all their belongings. And Moses is leading them through the wilderness and there's no water to drink. And they begin to turn on Moses. I mean, the same guy that they saw lead them out of Egypt, the same guy that stood there and the sea parted in front of him. I mean, the same guy that they've seen do all these things, but there's no water. And they start getting frustrated. Now, now, now think about what's happening. They're, they start to realize, wait a second, this is a fail. We've determined in our own mind this is a fail. This is bad. And they even go so far as to say, you, Moses and Aaron, you have led us all the way out in the wilderness so you could kill us. So we would come out here with no water and we would all die. That's what you've done. They start accusing Moses. They've defined success as having what they want, and they don't have what they want, therefore this must be a fail. And so Moses feels the, the, the people turning on him, and so he goes before the Lord. In verse 8, the Lord says to Moses, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield water. You know this story. Thus you shall bring water for them, out of the rock, and you'll give drink to the congregation and their animals. So God says, this is what you need to do. Do this, and they'll drink. So Moses gets the rod, as the Lord commanded. 
In verse 10, the Bible says, And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock that the Lord had said. And he says, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and all their animals drank. A million people. A million people. And all their animals. We're not talking about a fire hydrant here. We're talking Niagara Falls comes out of this rock. I mean, it's the biggest wave pool that's ever been created. Everybody's drinking fresh water everywhere. And what do you think the scene is? For um, Five minutes ago, they were all accusing Moses of, of leading them to their death. Now there's all the water they can ever imagine, and everyone's cheering. Moses, the hero, the great one. You have, look at what you've done. I mean, they're all, boy, they, Moses is the most popular guy in the world. He's at the top of the popularity charts. Everyone wants to know him. Everybody wants to thank him. I mean, everything's wonderful. As defined by people. But God doesn't define things the way we do. And so God turns to Moses and says, But you, Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land that I've given them. Huh? Wait a second. They're the ones that were accusing me of leading them in here to kill them. You're the one that told me to get the rod and to do this, and so I do this, and the water comes out, and now you're telling me that I'm not going to lead the people into the promised land? That's right. Because God's saying, I don't define success the way you do. See, they all think you're great, but I don't think it's that great because the way I define success is faithfulness. And you took matters into your own hand. You went beyond what is written. You took what I said and you twisted it around to the way that it made sense to you. You took my command to speak to the rock and you turned it around to make some demoralizing statement to my people and then strike the rock with a rod, which I didn't tell you to do. And so for that, that's a fell. And... Moses is receiving this information at the same time all the people around him are cheering his name. And you know what we do? We read this account in Scripture and we think to ourselves, you know, God, that's kind of harsh. That's just being a little nitpicky, don't you think? Because we're just like them. That's not the way we are. And so we don't think that ought to be the way God is. You see, we think it's harsh because we value success the way we define it. And when God does something that's not the way we think it ought to be, then we, don't, we think, well, well, that's just not really right. You see... In the grand scheme of life, if you could just understand this morning that there's only one person's opinion that matters. One. 
And it's not who's around you. It's not who you're related to or who you're married to. And it's not you. It's God. What is God's, what is this, what is this great God's opinion of you this morning, of where you are as his child, walking in the difficulty that you're in? What if this morning you laid down the mantle of all the things that you want God to do, and you just simply said, God, Starting today, I'm just going to row the boat that you've put me in. And I'm going to steward what you've entrusted to me. And if I can't see land, if there's a headwind blowing like nobody's business, I'm just going to keep on rowing. And I'm just going to be faithful. Then what would happen is God would begin to unravel the mysteries of himself. You see, listen. I don't know if God's going to fix your marriage. But he wants to fix you. Why don't you be the faithful person? Why don't you just row the boat? Stop telling everybody what your spouse is doing and just row the boat. Stop telling everybody what your kid's doing and just row the boat. Stop whining about your job and just row the boat. Stop telling everybody about all the things that you don't want and that you want to be different and just row the boat. Just be faithful. Be faithful in whatever the day brings. Be an under rower. And you'll see that God will continually allow you to steward greater and greater mysteries of who he is. And all that matters is when you get to the end, what you want to hear and what I want to hear is well done, good and faithful. Not successful. Faithful. Faithful servant. Let's stand.